my dancing was so good that time. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Plants and Pipettes. We're back after a couple of weeks away, which means all of us are going to, well, all of us, both of us, but all two of us are going to be stumbling through our facts that we collected four weeks ago and wrote down <laughs> and <laughs> then didn't do and then <laughs> we'll vaguely recall now, perhaps accurately, perhaps not. It's touch and go. Yeah, it's it's the thought that counts. Like we're thinking about doing this episode, <laughs> and I think that's as much as anybody can can like. That's my expect approach from to us. science. <laughs> what what have you been up to, Yoram? Where, where have you been? It's not in my heart. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I'm always there, but I was also in France, but it was really not that exciting. I had to work there. I went there for a holiday for a week to visit the family but um due to work stuff and being extremely good at my own job um <laughs> we had uh like twice the amount of work that we usually have in the month of april um it's all about oh, so like, funding application and stuff that we have to read and we just got twice as many as usual and so i had t twice as many to read and so twice as much time i spent in my my holidays where I, I when i booked it i was like yeah i can spend a day or a day and a half and then the rest of the time i can relax and play with the kids and i was like literally working night times to like squeeze it all and to get it done by the deadline so that was fun so this was actually not a joke about you being too good at it. Like you promoted something too well and then, i mean which is good i can't i can't take the credit myself like the like I think a couple of factors came together um, that we all as a team did, did very well. Um, I don't want to brag that it's like my, my own work. Um, but yeah, but overall, it all worked out so well that it was like a great success, but with great success come, comes a great workload. So um, my... As the saying goes. I, I went to, to France and then I spent all, all day indoors uh, reading stuff instead of like going out and enjoying France. It was probably rainy anyway, and I hear there there's riots and stuff. So yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. <laughs> and what what have you been up to? Oh, I don't know. Not not going to France so far. Um, I, I what, what have I been doing? I'm not sure. Um, 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 life. Uh, <laughs> but you will be traveling, right? Like, um, you will be traveling soon. Is that something you want to talk about, or is that like a secret travel? The problem is I said not going to France and then I panicked because I am going to France this weekend, but that's just the most, oh, oh darling, I'll be traveling to the continent this weekend, in fact. Um, <laughs> my family has decided to visit from Australia, but they can't be bothered going the extra step and actually coming to the UK, so they just made it to Paris <laughs> and I have to go there apparently. <laughs> we will fly um, 10,000 kilometers, but not 10,100. <laughs> you do your part. The rest is up to you, Tegan, so I shall go, yeah, I'll go and visit them. Um, just for a weekend and see some friends and oh, but it's nice. see what France is all about these days. Yeah, I, I heard it's good. Like from from the inside, <laughs> like through a couple of windows <laughs> while looking at my computer screen, France is really nice. <laughs> I've also been, um, and I, this is sort of an introduction also to the like the science content of today's episode. I've been playing with yet another GPT tool, and uh, I found a thing called Chat PDF. Um, and I found it quite amazing. Um, you upload a PDF into this tool and then it sort of analyzes the PDF and then you can talk to the chatbot and it replies to you based on the PDF. So I had like a science communication document that had like hundreds of pages um, 
that was recently published um, and I dropped it in there because I was too lazy to read like 130 pages on best practices in science communication. Um, and then I could talk to the chatbot and be like, hey, what's in that paper? Uh, what's what's going on? What are like the main findings? What are the use cases? On what page can I learn more if I have a small project? And it could give me good answers for all of those. I was really, Okay, so you actually, you checked this. You checked yeah, the, like, the answers. I was like, okay. I have a small science communication project. Um, are there any examples in this document where I can find like best practices how to do that? And I was like, yeah, on page 64, you find it. And I looked at page 64 and it was like a use case um like a, like it was an example description of a small scale science communication project so it could figure this out and i i was quite amazed by it it was it was pretty cool and um so yeah uh, i use that now for the pdfs of for the science papers now i mean I, I i checked the stuff and i also read like parts of the papers but i tried it out like can can artificial intelligence make my job as a podcaster easier and we'll see that if that worked tonight <laughs> Oh, so all the facts you're bringing tonight have gone through chat PDF? Exactly. Oh, dear. <laughs> I mean, they're based on real papers. It's not that they like I had the, PD the, the AI make up scientific topics, but instead of reading no, no. the entire paper, I had to I Which, read a paper I mean, and then me asking sorry, questions just, about it. Are we pretending that we used to do that previously? Like previously, I would sit and like really go through the subs and I make would, sure like, I understood every methodology. To the authors, um, <laughs> I would consult with like my science. I would physically panel. go to the laboratory to see what they had been doing. I would in sometimes this, recreate now. the key experiments <laughs> just to be sure. It's the only way to know. It's the only really the true way to know. <laughs> okay, so everything that you're presenting has gone through chat PDF, which. Okay, yeah. I guess that's... Yeah, we'll see how, how that goes. <laughs> this, is, this is what it is. I, we always knew that when, when the alien robots came, Yoram would embrace them first. So let's do it. Science stuff? Let's do some science stuff. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. So the first paper that uh, I found that came out is called 100 Important Questions Facing Plant Science and International Perspective. This this sounds familiar. Have we have we had some? Yes, like this, this, this is something that um, was done already multiple times beforehand and this is sort of the current version of it. Um, this is okay. the 2023 or 2022 version of the 100 most pressing plant questions. Okay. Um uh, yeah, this is published in 2023, actually, and this was done already um, in 2011, was the original version, and now they updated it. So the process here is it's an actual international um, process across all continents. They had like 616 questions that they they selected before, and then they in every country they had like a panel of specialists that would narrow down these lists of questions and choose their own prefer preferred list of 100 important questions and then all of them were grouped together to make the final list of 100 questions and then they were uh, clustered in different topics like plants and society plant physio physiology and development plant microbe interactions and plant evolutionary biology and in all of these you find like a list of questions um that's that are answered or that that we have to find answers to mm -hmm. um and yeah, so this, these were like from the regions of, of the both Americas uh, or the, the three Americas, the Americas, Oceania, uh, Oceania and Asia, Europe and Africa, where the groups where they selected these. Um, 
So yeah, there are a couple of, of these questions like in, in these different uh, categories. And I think um, interestingly, sort of on a meta commentary here, this is where this chat PDF thing gave me good summaries of it, but I could, was, was not able to give me any specific question like i could if i would query it like what is question 23 it would not give me the real answer it would always have something that's similar to actual question 23 i mean so my thing would be that's a hundred questions that's already it's still quite a lot of questions so i would just want to ask chat pdf like which is the best one yeah <laughs> which is the most important of them and it couldn't really give me that, but it could, could tell me that there are questions talking about um, how the society interacts with plants, um, the uh, sociology, history, anthropo uh, anthropology, economy, psychology, health and well-being, uh, pedagogy, urban environments, academia, and indigenous histories, and ethnobotany botany was, were, were parts of, of this group. So this is the the group A, and there's, for example, the main question here is how should the scientific community address the negative ecological, climate, and educational impacts caused by plant awareness disparity? Um, and, and it goes on, how should the scientific community better represent the benefits and risks of GMOs and gene-edited plants to the public? How can we make plant science education practice and research more equitable and inclusive? And so on and so on. And I think... Um, the main thing is, I mean, this is a list of, of lots of open questions. So, of course, it could all sort of be, it's sort of weird to just ask the questions. One thing that they found in the paper or that they stated in the paper is that many of these questions have some answers already, but they're mm -hmm. not widely known. So, this also sort of reflects on the scientific community that while there are already answers to some of these questions, not everybody is aware of them, and there is something that to be done about that on a sort of systemic level. And on the other hand, this helps people to prioritize what they want to like focus their research on, or maybe what people want to spend money on researching based on these questions, um, because it is like stuff that that didn't make this list is maybe not unimportant, but yeah, it's not deemed one of the most pressing questions right now um, for for us as um, like. As humanity which is your favorite question oh that's i mean <laughs> I, I i like gene editing and i, like I was gonna whole... say crispr crispr how do we use gene editing to improve food security that I, one i think <clears throat> i i mean i pretty much like most questions in the plants and society section because i think this is sort of on a yeah on a society level the most important stuff this is like how can we like have an informed discourse about plant science and how can we actually deal with the problems that we created as a society, like climate crisis, um, with with plants. Um, but on the other hand, I also like really the um, sort of more scientific questions, um, like the the molecular research um, stuff. <laughs> so um like what will be the end point of the improvement of photosynthesis efficiency is like an interesting thing to think about like is this something where we can actually reach like is there a thing that we can reach is there like a finite improvement or can we continuously push the boundaries of photosynthesis by pushing all all things around it um i find it quite interesting to think about that i think this is one of the questions that's really hard to answer because like really hard to say oh now we've done everything there is to do with photosynthesis um but maybe show the, the point that we sometimes struggle to like squeeze out more efficiency means that we're already very close to the optimum in in some some organisms 
So that's 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 the long list of uh, questions. Um, so if you want to like, they summarize them in a paper as well, uh, with like a word map, which I'm always like, I don't know how much of a fan I'm of word maps, but the main things are climate change, food, and crop. So not a big surprise there. <laughs> no. Um, I, I have a, a study that actually follows on from one of those questions somewhat. So one of the questions was about the use of Indigenous knowledge and how to use that to, so how to work with Indigenous communities to preserve Indigenous knowledge, um, specifically as it relates to sustainable agriculture, medicinal plants and land stewardship. So this is a little bit related to that concept. There is a paper that came out in Nature Eco Evo, so Nature Ecology and Evolution, um, just earlier this month, so at the start of April. It's by Fiona Walsh and colleagues, and it's looking at the first people, so the Indigenous people of Australia, who have been on the land for 65,000 years, at least we know continuously, and how their knowledge is linked to understanding what the hell is happening with fairy circles. So do you remember what fairy circles are? Aren't these like these these circular mushroom growth where like all of the mushrooms like sprout emerge at the same time in a circular pattern? It's close. It's not actually mushrooms. So it's kind of almost crop circles. So it's basically mm. bareness. So it occurs in arid lands, particularly arid grasslands. And it was found, I think, first in southern Africa, so like in the Namib um, desert region. But now it's also been found in my state, Western Australia, in the Pilbara, so sort of in the north. So you've got these grasses and then sort of in the middle of it, you have these quite nicely circular patches which are just bare so there's like a circle of, of bareness um between two to about 12 meters in diameter um, and often it's like you've got this ring but then you've got grass growing around it and there's been like really a lot of discussions about what this could be so Let's go through it sort of chronologically. In 2004, Gretel van Rohen from the University of Pretoria suggested it's termites, but also mm -hmm. suggested radioactive to soil and plant toxins. In 2008, another scientist, Angelique Gilbert, said it's plant toxins. There's plants that grow there and then they die and they leave behind toxins in the soil and that prevents other things from growing in that particular area. 2012 comes around and Eugene Mole says, nope, it's definitely termite species. Um, all the rings seem to have termite bits in them. So there's like remnants of termites. So this is likely the thing that caused the circles. Um, and then in 2013, another scientist, Norbert Jurgens, found that, yes, there seems to be termites almost always there. But although that seems like the problem might be solved, um, later on, a, another scientist in Florida State University, this is Walter Schinkel, said, you have made a common scientific error of confusing correlation, even very strong correlation, with causation. That was a quote. Um, and said that although it looks like there might be termites, just because there are termites, there doesn't mean they cause the rings. And in fact, they, like Jurgens, um, had found that... There was termites, but other people said that there's not termites always there. So apparently still an open question. Going on further, other people said that this was actually a natural consequence of competition between different grass species. So they sort of have this no man's land between them somehow. Um, then there was another thing that this was like a competition that was based specifically on water resources. So the plants are organizing themselves in a way that is preventing... Um, 
yeah, loss of, of fitness when water is limiting. Um, there was also something about hydrological feedbacks and then something about weak seeps of hydrogen through fault lines um, that could cause some depressions and maybe hydrogen living microbes were involved as well. And this is up to 2023, basically. So this is sort of carrying on with these discussions backwards and forwards. Um, anyway, the paper that came out in Nature Eco Evo is really a broader argument. So it's talking about these fairy circles, but it's a broader argument for the inclusion of Indigenous knowledge and basically the co-production of the knowledge with Indigenous peoples um, to understand what's happening. And they use some nice examples throughout, which combine not just like science and going out and actually physically digging up these circles in the field so they do that do that they go and like have a little dig and they find termites in mm-hmm. the field but they also show and discuss the fact that there are different aboriginal people in these regions different groups and they sort of consistently link these circles with the presence of a certain type of um, termite and not only are they linking like this you know, indigenous scientific knowledge, but they're also showing that this has already been represented in art. So um, they have examples from like the 1970s um, and they found like multiple different examples of Aboriginal art forms, which basically look exactly the way these fairy circles look um, from the air. So there's Mm -hmm. these very circular patterns on the ground. They have, um, as I figure one of their paper, a sort of... um, satellite or i don't know above the ground drone kind of images of the fairy circles and next to it they have the aboriginal art and they say hey these these art pieces are entitled flying termites and they look (laughs) like this thing (laughs) so maybe this is um an indication that there's some knowledge that should have been considered um and looked into so it's it's an interesting paper because it does combine these different elements so the indigenous scientific knowledge but also like showing that these representations have been there but they've just been ignored um and discussing how what this means about how we should go forward with um co-production of knowledge systems so that's um a nature eco evo paper that is called first people's knowledge leads scientists to reveal fairy circles and termite lineally lingy sorry are linked in australia mm-hmm. yeah it's th- that's 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 very interesting so in, in the end it's the termites that are responsible in the end it looks like it's the termites i think that's the most consistent yeah argument at least in australia i'm not sure if there's a different cause um in the sort of southern african reasons but i mean this is not like a hundred percent conclusive of all all these patterns in all cases but um they're saying hey there's multiple people who found this in different contexts but also the people who know that land mm-hmm. are like this is what we've known for <laughs> time so it's it seems um yeah like the convincing argument so far i think yeah, yeah, but there's no model yet how how the termites make these these circles appear. But uh, yeah, there could be all kinds of theories how that how that happens. But yeah, very very interesting, and 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 I think very important to know that like there might be people that are f- like that researchers forget to ask that are actually already having the answers, like similar to the 100 questions where they're like, oh yeah, this is a very important unanswered question. But if you ask the right people, there's actually already an answer there. There's already a th- like somebody who can give you a good explanation. Um, I have something very different. <laughs> I don't even try to segue from this now. Um, 
we've but something that we've talked a, a couple of times about already i think sometimes on on the blog we wrote about this but i think also on the podcast we've talked about this like plants and sounds and the relationship of plants that and and sounds like can they sense sounds um can they emit sounds um and i found a paper that looks at the emission of sounds and the understanding of sounds by plants this so was we had the, the big news from last month yeah this was a thing that sort of blew up everywhere oh yeah that's possible i guess I mean, I've, I've I've seen the paper somewhere, but I haven't seen like read read much about it in like secondary media. But it, it's quite possible that it, uh, it it was quite popular. So the paper is called "Sounds Emitted by Plants Under Stress Are Airborne and Informative" by uh, Kate et al. Um, uh, published in Cell. Um, and yeah, so what they did here, or what did they actually want to to see? So the the main question that they had was like. Can, do plants emit sounds when they're stressed? Can these sounds be understood? So you can figure out what's going on with the plant. Um, and can they maybe even be helpful in an artificial, like in a greenhouse setting? Because that's a setting where us humans care about the condition of plants in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they um, put plants under stress are mostly like drought and uh, drought and cutting stress so they they hurt the plants and they dried the plants um and recorded ultrasonic emissions because like we know that plants don't make anything that we as humans can hear otherwise it would be like l- quite loud if you go into the greenhouse and all of the plants are constantly making like a humming noise or something like this so we know that there is no sound in the human audible range um, to be expected so they, they i don't know that in... plants are kind of everywhere so maybe we've just trained ourselves to block them out like i grew I mean, up can... on a flight path but i never heard the planes go over because there was always planes yeah i mean that's that's true but i mean there's microphones um and people brought microphones <laughs> no, and I'm, labs. I'm i being think deliberately they... stupid sorry please carry on <laughs> <laughs> no but i mean i mean you're right like there's this whole like it, it relates to this idea of plant blindness right like we have plants so, so much around us that we often don't even notice them and it could be on an audible way like level as well like they could make like a constant like low-pitched hum and like all species would learn to tune out of that because that would be so stressful to like consciously hear that but in this case um they they listened on an ultrasonic level um and then they used machine learning algorithms to link the the sounds that they recorded to the treatments that they did to the plants and they could identify certain patterns that could distinguish the different types of stresses um Mm -hmm. So they could figure out like the, a certain pattern of sounds that would tell them this plant is drought stressed; it needs water, or this plant is uh, like uh, damaged, and therefore it emits a different level of ultrasonic sounds. Um, and they could find that yeah, that works. They they are there are ultrasonic sounds that can be measured; they can be linked, and they could even predict based on the sounds what's wrong with the plant. So you can imagine that in um, in a greenhouse setting, you could monitor like it's, it ranges up to like three to five meters um, the the sound waves that they could register. So if you place every three meters a microphone tuned to ultrasonic frequencies, you can like measure the different spots in your greenhouse and then figure out where you need water without probing the soil with electrodes or stuff like that. So that could be a very like cost effective and simple way to f- monitor the health of your plant population in a greenhouse. Um, 
So that's that's quite cool as a as a as a thing, and it's also quite interesting that plants are not like quiet beings; um, they just work on a on a level that we as humans can't really hear. Did did you see? This is a bit unrelated. Did you see the thing where somebody linked like um, ChatGPT or some version of it to a Furby and asked about taking over the world? I think <laughs> no. we need this for the plants now, where like the the Furby is just like. Give me water. Give me water. Like, okay, imagine a little <laughs> creepy Furby voice. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like. I think there's like two things that I want to like talk about. Um, and more there, and I forgot the second, so maybe I'll just talk about one. But the first thing is, um, like, make mechanically. Or like, how do plants actually do that? And I think it all comes down to like hydraulic stresses. And so um, changes in the hydraulic pressure within this, these plants, so the, the water pressure inside the cells, inside the stem and so on, that changes and that that probably creates some like resonant frequencies in, in the plants and that emits these like ultrasonic sounds. Um, I mean, which, yeah, everything makes a sound if you listen hard enough. Is that like, I mean... Yeah. What is silence? <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, everything I think that has like some sort of internal stuff going on. Like, I, if you have just like a solid chunk of metal that you put in a silent room, I think you. Yeah, it'll expand. It'll contract. It'll make noises. Yeah, if if you have then like temperature changes and stuff. Um, so uh, yeah, I <laughs> I really can't can't remember what the second thing was. Ah, no, the second thing is I wonder, and I think there is nothing in the paper about this. Is um, if that's something that animals can hear? Like there are animals that can hear ultrasonic sounds, um, and I think quite a few uh, <laughs> animals can do that. And I wonder if this for is the like herbivores <laughs> under them. That, that's like something that they can sort of here and tell them like this patch of plants there is sort of drought stressed it's not worth going there they, they they scream the plants in that corner are screaming let's go to the other area because there it's like nicer and uh the, the plants are fr fresher i, I think it's more just like this is why your cat keeps on pissing on your plants because it just wants the screaming <laughs> to stop <laughs> it's just like for god's sake John, give this planet a fine i'll do it i'll do it it's fine <laughs> Just, just as an edit here, Yoram just cheated and asked his chat PDF if the paper did in fact mention animals, and he had just um, forgotten that he read that part. Yoram, <laughs> yes. what's the answer? Um, the the researchers actually talk in the paper about uh, animals, and specifically they talk about moths as an example of animal that can hear and react to ultrasound frequencies, and so they they speculate that this could there could be a link there, like. Obviously, in that paper, they didn't look like closely at the moth-plant interaction, but they note as well in the paper and uh, that there might be something going on there. And I, I said before that they didn't do that, so I just want to correct that here. <laughs> they actually did do the thing <laughs> that I came up with. <laughs> I'd like to mention also that Yaram did say, and, and, and this might shock everyone, that it is in fact harder for him to remember what's in the paper when he hasn't actually read the paper. <laughs> so he won't be using chat PDF in the future, or at least not always in the future. I guess it will come up again. Yeah, let's see. Let's see. <laughs> um, Yaram, if I had to ask you which group of plants is the most deceptive the sneakiest what would you say or the sneakiest plant um i mean there are these stories about this plant that that i forgot the name of that mimics uh the plants that it grows on it's like the thing that some biologists always pull up when they want to say that plants 
are conscious and can see the world around them because this plant that we just haven't figured out yet how this plant mimics the plant that it's growing on um so that's quite a deceptive plant because it literally pretends to be the thing that it grows on while absolutely not being the thing that it grows on okay but i would say that deceit for the purpose of hiding is like valid deceit so that would be like a white lie by a plant's point of view what about a deceit for personal gain I mean, like deliberate, like trickery and robbery of others for I mean, your own personal gain. And there's also many examples. There's all of the parasitic plants, obviously. Then there's these these plants that attract these fungus gnats um, by pretending to be uh, what was it? Was it pre- pretending to be a fungus? And the, the, the like the flies are used to going inside the the thing because they're expecting an an exit of the flower. But there's like this this trap plant that doesn't have the exit so they the, the flies crawl in there and then they can't escape and then they are digested by the plant so that's also quite deceptive to the for the gains of the plant yeah i was i was thinking i mean that those are all correct i was actually thinking generally speaking orchids like orchids are the jerks of plants that <laughs> repeatedly this i mean famously deceive insects literally like do the thing where they dress up in the fancy lady yeah. insect outfits to try and get other insects to have sex with them which is like that's true both mean and a bit kinky as well but then vanilla is an orchid and i don't find vanilla deceptive so um okay <laughs> Vanilla so, redeems all other orchids. <laughs> I see. So I'm going with the orchids. This this huge family. Um, apparently, the use of deceit to pollination is pretty much well known among orchids, and it's actually one of the things which is discussed as one of the reasons that orchids themselves are so diverse. So orchid is one of these groups which has just like many, many, many species in them, all very different. Like both like uh, like diversified just and like visually very like clearly different as well and part of the argument is that because they were doing all these tricksy things they had to sort of diversify in order to be tricksier and there are different ways they do this so some is like food deception um so like looking tasty but then actually not being tasty um this is not just something that orchids can do it's actually arisen multiple times in different angiosperms so in different flowering plant groups but generally like just a couple of species do that in each family whereas apparently about all a third of all orchids are food deceptive so again as a group Mm -hmm. one third of them Trixie. On top of this, as we mentioned, they also use sexual deception. And again, this is pretty common. Maybe up to 10% of all the Orchidaceae use sexual deceit. Um, and it's also arisen multiple times, which means it's not just like one orchid, you know, historically learned how to sexually trick bugs. It's that they've all worked out this is a great thing to do in order to get ahead um, as a thing. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of looking at this. I found this when I was going through a rabbit hole because I was thinking about pollination and what we know about pollination. And then I was thinking that the problem with pollination is that a lot of the studies we have on insect is from Drosophila, which is not usually something that I think of as a pollinator. Like when I think pollination, I tend to think like bees, maybe moths. And then I was like Googling what about like flies do flies pollinate and of course they do sometimes pollinate things we know that some things like smell specifically kind of rotten and disgusting um like carrion in order to get pollinated by flies so then i was looking into fly pollination as a concept it's called myophily Mm -hmm. um, and it seems to be pretty common also for orchids about 15 to 25 percent of the orchids are being pollinated by flies 
And perhaps unsurprisingly, many of these orchids are tricking flies into coming to their orchids. Um, so it's been noted that some of the flowers of orchids do use this kind of rotten fruit odor. So that's a little bit tricksy, um, which is sending out the signal that there is something like juicy that the Drosophila, so fruit flies usually go for rotten fruit, would like. Um, although they do also seem to give some nectar for the flies so to sort of reward them a little bit to hang around. Um, yeah. But I was looking into this in a paper and it was discussing that there's this genus of orchids called Speclinia, which is found in South America, Central America and the Caribbean. It's got approximately 100 different species and it was just going into the different ways that these specific orchids attract flies and they do it by um, producing these special pheromones which are encouraging this aggregation of the different Drosophila. So it's a little bit of an older paper, but it was just kind of the wormhole that I fell into this week. <laughs> so I would say if we have to go with anyone, the orchids are definitely the most tricksy. Yeah, definitely. Um, it makes me, it changed my mind, like opinion on them when you see them on like beautiful display cases somewhere. But maybe that's also like plant intelligence that they tricked us into caring for them by being so deceptive to be so pretty that humans want to like spend time and energy to keep them alive and in their homes <laughs> that's a very um plants are intelligent argument yes. which i do not expect from you um <laughs> but like when i was when i was thinking about this i was like clicking through some of the articles like every now and then i just like go looking through articles and then i pull stuff up and put them in a like folder somewhere and then forget about them and i was looking through my articles and i found that there was something that was just published earlier this year so at the end of january um in ecology and evolution and it was looking at how a certain type of australian orchid which is actually a donkey orchid so it's called a donkey orchid because it looks really cutely like the face of a donkey um is tricking again bees by deliberately having signals so the flower itself doesn't look like another plant it, it's it's tricking bees into thinking that it's a different plant a pea plant and the pea plant gives rewards so the pre pea plant is something that as a bee you want to go there because you get some rewards like pollen or nectar this guy does not do that instead it just doesn't even physically look like the same flower but it has uv reflection patterns so it basically <laughs> has you know like the lights for the planes to to land yeah it has those which if the bees the right distance alone away looks very similar to the rewarding model so it's it's kind of like double laziness because it's not even gone all the way it's just like yeah you know what we'll throw on these lights and hope that some bees land at the same time um <laughs> yeah. so i'll put the link to that paper as well um yeah but yeah, yeah. Donkey, donkey orchid they 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 look i i wouldn't like immediately come up with a like the term donkey but they definitely have like these two large yellow petals that look like ears and then sort of a face so definitely like an animal um i would have rather said like rabbit or something um like some of them really look like cartoon rabbits but yeah i mean maybe the, the person who named them was ar around more donkeys than they were around rabbits and therefore no, I think the problem is there is in fact also a rabbit orchid. So that might have <laughs> that just was been taken. that was already taken. It's also found in Australia, and the rabbit orchid has much like bigger rabbit yeah. ears, and it also has kind of little fluffy rabbit legs. Like it looks like it's kind of a, a bouncing rabbit. Yeah, it's like <laughs> <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Yarm's very happy now. 
<laughs> yeah, now I just want to like like put animal names and then orchid in the end. Oh, there's a giraffe orchid. I just like typed in <laughs> giraffe orchid, and there's one because it has a pattern like a giraffe. <laughs> so this will be the rest of my night. I think the best one is flying duck orchid. Uh, flying duck orchid. This is really impressive to me. Oh yeah, <laughs> orchids are weird. They 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 are really weird. Yeah. Okay, so obviously the Yoram reacts to orchids is going to have to wait for our YouTube channel to launch. Until then, Yoram, do you have any more plant facts to bring us today? Uh, I, I have something. Do you know what a Turing pattern is? No. It's um, like a mathematical model that describes the relationship of two like like um, chemical concentrations and that uh, have an influence on each other and based on the concentration of these individual things, you get like a, um, an equilibrium happening and that can then, according to the model, uh, produce a certain like different patterns. And you, like if you look for a Turing pattern, it's something you've seen in nature. And for example, the, the skin of a, a giant pufferfish has these patterns. Some slime molds produce these patterns when, when grown. Um, you find them on different animals. Uh, sometimes you can find them, for example, when you look at uh, dried out savanna where you have the um, like grassy patches and dry patches and sort of the different <laughs> concentrations. fairy circles as does everything else. <laughs> yeah, so they, they, they create this pattern and there are these, these Turing equations that Alan Turing came up with um, that create a similar, similar pattern and for a very long time it was unclear whether they, the two are linked, sort of the biological observation and the equations, or if it's just like the mathematical equations by chance produce patterns that look similar to the stuff that you find in nature. But in nature, it actually works in a, like the mechanism is different from the mechanism described by the Turing equations. For a long time, we couldn't really uh, like distinguish that. Um, but then researchers grew uh, chia seeds in trays, and they okay. changed the available moisture. So they, they took one of the, the parameters of the equation um, that relates to the, the moisture in this experiment. And then they were tweaking the moisture level and they could get then different patterns that would resemble the outcome of the equation if you treat the like change the parameter in the same way as you would do in the experiment. And it could really show that the equations are a really, really good fit to the thing that you observe in nature. Um, so by changing the thing in real life and in the equation, they would get two times the same like pattern outcome. And that shows that the Turing equation seems to really be the underlying mechanism of the emergence of these different patterns. Um, and it doesn't really have... A straightforward application or something but it's really cool that these these set of equations that like many people looked at for a long time and were always suspecting to be related to biology are actually like fit actually together there and i find it quite cool it's just like it's a very simple experiment with like these chia seeds and a trace in the article that we're linking you see pictures of that it's like really simple and straightforward you you have them at different levels of of dryness or, or wetness and grow them and then they they seem to like emerge into these these like different like splotchy blobby patterns um that you can also create by turing equations very cool oh yeah i have a favorite plant today oh a favorite plant 
Yoram, Yoram, I want to talk about my favorite plant. Yoram. Yoram. I don't have to do anything. <laughs> my favorite plant. Yoram, today I would like to talk about my favorite plant, which is called Bulbine fructescens. And Bulbine fructescens is um, from the genus Bulbine. And the, the name Bulbine apparently is related to the fact that it has a tuber that is bulb-shaped. That's basically all I could find out about this species from Wikipedia, except that <laughs> Bulbine fructescence then said that, in fact, this bulbineness of the tuber is incorrect when it comes to this species, and it's a misnomer. So I don't know a lot about this plant, I have to be honest. Um, broadly speaking, it's within a group of plants that also contains Australian grass trees. So these kind of um, uh, things with a black stem, a dark stem, and then like spiky grass kind of going out in all directions. Mm-hmm. Xantheria is the, the name. Um, and it also clusters with some succulents like aloe vera um, and Hawthornia, which might be a little bit more familiar. So it is a succulent plant and it looks, I would say, fairly fine. <laughs> like <laughs> It's nothing special to look at. Um, but what is special is that there was a recent publication that came out in Functional Ecology about this plant and how this plant is really great at working out what the weather is going to be tomorrow. So Ooh. as far as like a sign of springtime, I mean, it's, it's more about what the weather was yesterday, but let's give the plant some power and say it's predictive <laughs> powers. Um, so the bulbine fructescent, actually, in fact, many of the, 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 plant, the f- plants in the bulbine genus, they have this thing where they, they can flower all throughout the year, which is really handy from a scientific point of view because that means you've got a ton of data points to link the the weather or the conditions, the environmental conditions of the flowering, because it seems to be able to just like do it quite continuously, theoretically. Um, but when the flowers do come out, they also only come out for one day. Mm-hmm. So it's not like there's only one chance for the thing to flower completely because it has its flowers on a spike. Um, so the flowers sort of open from the bottom to the top in ascending order. So you have, you know, a couple at the very bottom open and then those die down one day later, literally one day later. And then the next guys come open um, and that happens. But that ha- seems to happen in a way that is linked to the weather. An important thing to notice about this plant is that not only does its flowers only open for one day, but also its flowers are incapable of mating with each other. So they're self-incompatible which means they need a middleman, which means they need a pollinator. Um, They don't actually produce nectar, but they do do give pollen, which is a reward. Unlike those tricksy orchids, they're giving something when they're taking something, which is what a good, honest plant does. Um, They also do have anther hairs, though, which apparently look like pollen, so I think they kind of are a little bit tricksy. But in any case, they have these flowers that open for one day, and in that one day, they really, really need that the pollinators come, because if not, they've missed their timing. Yeah thing about pollinators is pollinators don't like hanging around when it's cold they don't like hanging around when it's rainy they tend to get like rained down i'm guessing you know i'm i'm yeah, <laughs> editorializing a little bit here it's really hard to fly with like tiny umbrellas yeah, in their hand. Bees, bees don't like being wet you guys um so basically this paper is a fairly straightforward paper where the author looked at observations of when these flowers are appearing, um, both in California and in um, South African regions, which is where they're sort of originally from. 
And they found generally that the flowers only open if the previous day is about 15 degrees. Mm-hmm. So kind of a nice sign that the weather has been good. But this is actually a thing that has happened in a specific way where the flower development occurs but is then suppressed um, and then sort of it stays at a certain point and takes sort of a full day to f- do the final ripening. So it sort of gets almost ready and then doesn't ripen until it gets the, the, the final cues. And these cues seem to be that it needs at least 16 hours of the day before to be above 12 degrees, um, which basically means it's got to be a whole day of nice weather. Otherwise, the flowers are staying shut. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was just like a pretty straightforward thing to say, hey, these plants have a good way of understanding what the weather is. But then, of course, the author also looked at the benefit of this and they found, yes, as it turns out, if you map this to when pollinators around, this waiting period, so like checking the weather, but then also having this 24-hour waiting sort of of development, the final development before the pollinators comes, is what gives the plants the optimal fitness. So making sure the weather is good, but also having the wait um, is what gave those plants sort of the better fitness or the best synchrony with the pollinators, which all up is the best um, fitness for the plants. Is it also something that helps them to synchronize with each other? Because like, if you if they need, they not only need the pollinators, they also need another flower being open at the same time. And if every plant only opens their flowers on like a short set of days, uh, even if like they it's like they have consecutive days where they fl- open the flowers, but if like one flower one plant decides a week early to start, then it might be out of sync with the other plant. So does the weather help also with that? Um, so I'm actually not sure if it's self incompatible as far as not being able to pollinate the same flower or if it's ah. like plant level i i saw that like from the pictures i saw they're opening multiple flowers at a time um but it is also kind of a succulent like weird looking thing so i'm imagining it's not completely crazy that there's multiple of them in one area i think that's generally beneficial but yeah yeah i actually i'm not sure the answer for that yeah yeah i don't have chat pdf at hand so (laughs) 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 cannot check Um, in any case, this is a good argument for seeing bulbean fructescence as a perfect predictor, or at least um, previous Noah. What's the opposite of prediction? Retrodiction <laughs> of the weather. So if you see the flowers out, it means that yesterday was good. <laughs> you might already know that. <laughs> but so does bulbina. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's a very useless way of looking at the weather. It's just a weather app that always tells you like how the weather was yesterday. <laughs> and then the weather app is just like go look at the flowers. Yeah. <laughs> take a take a picture of the flower. A machine learning model will then tell you if it was nice yesterday. <laughs> I have a bias. Oh, a bias as Whoa. well. What's going on today? This is going crazy. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias. 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 Let's talk about bias. Um, this is a publication that came out just this year sometime in the Journal of Functional Ecology. 
And it's about the issue of double blind or double anonymous, as we're saying often now, peer review. So obviously with normal peer review, we tend to have it single anonymous or single blinded. And this means that largely speaking, the reviewers know who the authors are, but the authors don't know who the reviewers are. But in recent, I'm going to say decades, there's been a little bit of a push to try and consider having it as double anonymous, which means no one knows who anyone is. And there have been a few arguments backwards and forwards against this. So one of the arguments against this is that in a smaller field, you can never truly be double anonymized because if you see a publication come through, you quite often have a very good idea of who's been working on that research. Um, Generally, you've seen stuff at conferences or you just have like familiarity with the other people in the field. So it does make it stories that build on pre-existing studies right like if you say like we we found this mutant and then we continue to study it and found a new thing that's wrong with the mutant you know who found the initial mutant because like they're literally referencing it in the introduction yeah i mean you could say it was found by schwarzman and al this mutant not like i found this you could like slightly reword that um obviously generally speaking there would still be some more like obvious guesses about who was doing the current research yeah but there is a little bit of deniability and actually that's one of the things even with um single anonymous peer review is that there is like quite often a case where the author's can guess the reviewer's identities or at least think they can guess the reviewer's identities but just by having that thing where like there's not certainty it can change interactions i would say so it can prevent people from you know if you if you don't know for certain that can give a little bit of of leeway yeah anyway so now quite a few different journals have had these sort of trials where people can take up this double blind or double anonymous peer reviewing process but uptake is not always that high and actually part of that reason may potentially be that established scientists think that they would benefit by putting their name on the paper so they think that their reputation should somehow be involved and i'm not going to interpret whether this is a belief behind it but some people are reluctant to remove their name from the paper potentially yeah um, so this is now a report on the journal itself. So it's published in Functional Ecology, but it's a report on an experimental trial that Functional Ecology, the journal, did in 2019. They began a very large randomized trial where they used the real manuscripts that were submitted to the journal and basically randomly assigned whether they would be going under the kind of standards, so only single anonymous peer review, or whether they would be undergoing this um, double anonymous peer review. And then based on this, they can then look at if there was an impact of this double anonymizing on the outcome of the paper. And what they found was that there was. So doing this double blind or double anonymous review reduced the average success of manuscripts, um, which means that they were less likely to be invited to revise and resubmit. Um, Although this effect was also impacted by the location of the authors in questions. So perhaps unsurprisingly, first authors who came from countries with higher HDIs, this is like human development index so generally like you know if you're from a developed country as it were or with um higher average english proficiency had a much better chance of firing well than those from lower hdi or lower english proficiency papers 
which might seem okay it kind of maps up also to the fact that there's more resources perhaps to put into research but this only happened this advantage only existed when the identities of the authors were known to reviewers so when there was this double blind situation the outcomes were then similar between different demographic groups okay so that means that by not doing this double anonymous you get an advantage if you come from a higher hdi country and have a higher english proficiency level in your country on average i mean it's not that you will get this but you know yeah but also um it reduces the overall acceptance rate you said right so like everybody has lower chances but like equally lower chances and not you don't have like the the the, the bias or the, the discrimination against the people from like the lower english so, proficiency and lower hdi countries well how it's reading is that you're removing a positive bias towards people who are yeah. coming from these H higher hgi and english speaking so that's basically it so authors from oh by the way there was no they also looked at gender and there wasn't an impact on on gender different on um yeah. genders of the first authors so basically they're saying there's strong evidence from this that authors from higher income and or english-speaking countries receive significant benefits i.e a large positive bias and i'm just reading from the abstract here um if they are identified during the peer review process while anonymizing the author identities reduces this bias making it more equitable yeah yes yeah, that's that's very interesting because like i i just read like 200 like over 250 applications for funding um and had to just like not really finally rate them but sort of sort them into like likely to get money and less likely to get money and i am completely new to this field like i'm i'm reading about like open source technologies and so i don't know anybody in the field so i would really just go through and just like look at what's what's written there and could not say anything about the authors and i think that sh that would have changed if i would have known some of the authors and would be like oh yeah this person like while this application might not be the strongest of the bunch but knowing what this person can do they get like a higher chance because i sort of know their background um it's yeah it absolutely happens if you know like there's clearly like this personal like oh yes i trust this person i know this person this is how like any in-group bias works yeah. but then it also works on even these broader things of just like i assume you know based on them having english speaking based on this um but it also means like the the conclusion here is that yes the, the this double anonymous can help but having it as optional is actually not helping because as we kind of knew people who are in these categories that benefit they're definitely there's there's they're not inclined to do it because they they're losing an advantage yeah. and i guess it's kind of no, like this could be argued as to why the uptake has not been <laughs> as as strong i mean yeah. again there are some other arguments against this this process so it's not just this but it is one of these things where there has to be some discussion of not what's the perfect answer but what's the more equitable of the options we have yeah 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 it's 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 like i'm thinking of many things where like an, an opt-in into like a more fair process doesn't work like you need to have it apply to everybody like if for example for for cvs when you apply to a job and you opt in that you don't have to put your name and picture but some people can mm. do that obviously only the people for whom it would be a disadvantage to do that 
they opt in in, in omitting that while the people who know that like being like a white and attractive person there. is an advantage to them they would still send in their photo and so they would still get the bias so it only works when nobody sends in their picture and nobody sends in their name yeah and then there's that double bias where you think oh maybe they didn't put their name on this because they're not proud of exactly. it or because you know like maybe there's a re it's not their best work but it's not the case it's just it's yeah. this or like, it, like even mm-hmm. in- encrypting your messages it's this idea like if only the people who have something to hide encrypt their messages it's very easy to spot them in a network but if everybody encrypts their messages it's really hard to spot these people so it's always it's always the thing like if you have to have these sort of measures um, applying to everyone and that just as like an option to to hide that an option to be like a double blinded in in a review process just as i mentioned i've seen like so this this paper does use the term double blinded but i've seen the double anonymous is used a bit okay. more um or it's starting to be used now i'm not sure what the update yeah. is um, yeah but that's a good point yeah yeah, I wonder if you had if you had like the default was that you had to be double anonymized, and then if you want to like go against the default, you click a button and there's like a pop up that says, "By the way, have you seen this research that suggests that like by doing this, you're trying to like perpetuate the status quo, which as it turns out is really problematic." <laughs> and <laughs> um, I'm sure we'll now get many people writing in telling me the problem of double anonymizing studies, and I I agree it's not perfect, but. Here's some evidence that the current system is also not yeah, perfect. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's 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 really hard for like a, a system that's based on humans who are far from perfect to find a system that then works perfectly. Like you will always have like some some trade-offs, and you can try to minimize the trade-offs and and make it at least fair. Because like overall, you could say like oh yeah, it's it's sort of mean also to make it harder for everyone, but it just. Uh, it just means that it's it's you you remove the advantage of some people and then it looks like it's harder for everyone but it's it's actually better i think that might be the end of our our depressing philosophical <laughs> <laughs> today is it depressing i don't, I know. don't know how to um Yarm, did you bring a cat oh yeah today? i actually prepared one like ages ago and did not read it just just now <laughs> Cat fact. That jingle felt longer than I remember it being. <laughs> um, I, I want to talk today about um, the, the, the cats of the rodents, um, <laughs> the largest and cutest rodents. Um, and that's, that's, do you want to take a guess what that is? The, the largest and cutest rodents? The capybara. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Capybaras. Um, Capybaras, um, these are like. They they are super like docile and and like very friendly with humans stupid. and yeah you could call them stupid. <laughs> call them stupid because they don't run away but they are an internet's favorite because just they just of, like look large and cuddly and don't mind being around humans. They're just a bit empty, aren't they? Like most <laughs> things of the capybara are just like them sitting under a waterfall and it's that thing where in the morning you you're really sleepy and you go to have a shower and then you kind of fall back asleep while you're in the shower and this is like this constant state of the capybaras. <laughs> yeah. They're just very very chill. They're just like having having a good time. Um so yeah, they're just very chill and as it turns out, um they also not only like to pose with humans for Instagram, but they also live next to humans. So, uh, in for example, in Sao Paulo, one of uh, like the most densely populated um, cities in Brazil, they are living 
very close to human settlements. You can find them there in parks and actually like next to university where the study is from, um, they can observe these capybaras every morning. And usually capybaras, when they are not around humans, uh, they are eating a lot of grass. And as the researchers say in, in, the, in the article, they call them grazers because they eat grass. Um, but they are able to eat other things. So they... Like when they have a choice, they, they they choose grass. But if they don't have a choice, apparently, um, they are very like happy to eat all sorts of other things, and that makes them so successful even around humans, where like other species would be like, oh yeah, there's not my favorite food source here. I'm I'm not going to settle here. I mean, capybaras they're so chill that they would just like eat other things. Um, this is a very cute way of like they've got good PR because basically they're big rats and as it turns out they're happy to eat other things like big rats. Yeah, that's the that's breaking the news. That's very big much lazy the- rats act like big lazy rats. Who knew? <laughs> yeah, they they would even sometimes use like cacti and um, like uh, uh, like trees, vines, and all other like like greenery that they can find and just eat that and then be be very happy doing that as well um and so in the study they looked at different populations of capybaras and and uh figured out that um capybaras are just like very versatile animals um (laughs) very much like big rats (laughs) all right i'm giving that cat fact a three out of ten to be honest (laughs) But I, I researched so long to find this cat fact, and Don't be so harsh. That's everything we have to say today about plants and rats, apparently. Um, if you want to look for us on the internet, you can find us at www.plantsandpipettes.com or on Instagram, we're at Plants and Pipettes. We're also on Facebook at Plants and Pipettes. If you want to talk to Yaram, you can go to Twitter or Mastodon. That is... Uh, at Plants Pipettes on Twitter. And to be honest, I haven't looked at one. <laughs> on Mastodon, yeah, that's at Plants and Pipettes uh, at podcast.social. Okay. And as always, <laughs> that was the least enthusiastic tooting about Mastodon that has ever happened. And Our opening and closing we... music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Uh, thank you for listening. <laughs> Until next time. <laughs> Is it maybe time for us all to just acknowledge that Mastodon is not happening? It's totally happening. Like I've, uh, I've, I've see, I see much more. Goodbye. Into- <laughs>